Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Swollen throat, coughing, sneezing, stuffy nose, itchy eyes, like like red eyes, um, just like overall miserable. Just heard my 15-year-old son describe why... He and I kind of dread what I think is the most beautiful time of year here in Texas, spring. He has seasonal allergies. Just last week, an article in the New York Times says spring is not just the time to ditch your winter jacket and frolic around outside. It also heralds the beginning of spring allergy season and the dreaded symptoms that come along with it. 26% of people in America, according to the article, have seasonal allergies. But how do you know if what's making your patient tired can be caused by allergies or a cold? Joining me today is Dr. Ed Brooks. Dr. Brooks, allergies may be indirectly affecting our patients' abilities to sleep. Absolutely. Absolutely. People forget to ask about snoring and nighttime awakenings that can easily make somebody fatigued during the allergy season. And what symptoms are the most important to pay attention to? Well, the obvious, the nasal itching, eye itching, watery eyes, sneezing that are associated with allergies is probably the most important symptom that heralds the onset of your allergy season. I'll back up a minute and introduce Dr. Brooks now. So Dr. Brooks has served on the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Expert Panel 4. He's the chief of UT Health San Antonio's Pediatric Immunology and Infectious Disease Division, and he sees patients at UT Health San Antonio's Adult and Pediatric Allergy Clinic on Medical Drive and at University Hospital. Dr. Brooks, thanks so much for being here on Pediatrics Now. Thank you. I see you completed your medical school at Texas Tech, residency and allergy fellowship at UTMB, and you did a postdoc at Harvard. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. Do you have a quote you would like to share today on Pediatrics Now? Everyone in San Antonio, when their nose runs, they say, it's my allergies. (laughs) And in fact, it's probably half the time just a cold. And so I think some of the questions later or how do you distinguish between those two? And it's it's the hardest question I have to address day in and day out. And then is the quote, it's there's a good chance that it's it's probably a cold at least half the time? I would say so, depending on the age of the patient, you know, um, and their situation. But um, allergies tend to be more persistent Colds come and go. And people seem to think that, well, something blew in and I was, you know, stuffy for a week and then it got better. Allergies don't usually act that way. They they come and stay around for a while. Let's start with asthma. Tell me about the SA Kids Breathe program. SA Kids Breathe is a community-based project 
headed up by Mandy Spotek here at UT in partnership with the city of San Antonio. This program is really a good program. They have developed a home visit program where they provide asthma education to children with asthma that is poorly controlled and will take referrals from anybody anywhere. So I'm putting a plug in to look up the SA Kids, the capital SA Kids Breathe program. And there's a referral form there. So any of the kids that the pediatricians who are listening or managing that are having difficulty with anything and ending up on oral steroids twice a year and having frequent exacerbations and not able to stay under control and need some education, the program is showing great outcomes when they go to the home and do environmental assessments and provide the asthma education that they need. That's amazing that they'll they'll come to the child's home. Right. No, it's a great program. Dr. Brooks, can you give us an asthma guidelines update? Well, the most important one that I like to talk about, again, this was a, wasn't a complete update of all the guidelines. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of topics that were left untouched. Um, but the primary one that was near and dear to my heart was the use of PRN inhaled steroids. This is something that's been in the medical literature for many years, and we finally had enough evidence-based research to assess the efficacy of using inhaled steroids on an as-needed basis. One example would be in children with intermittent asthma, but those exacerbations are quite severe, for instance, ending up on oral corticosteroids several times a year, but in between doing fairly well, it's been shown that if a 10-day course of inhaled steroids, either by nebulizer or inhaler, um, can significantly improve the outcomes of those exacerbations and hopefully prevent them from ending up in the emergency room on oral corticosteroids. The other example is the use of combination inhalers that contain both an inhaled steroid and a long-acting bronchodilator. So uh, try not to use too many brand names, but some people know Symbacort is budesonide and formoterol, and Dolera is mometasone and formoterol. The difference from the original combined inhaler, which is known as Advair, which is Luticasone and salmeterol is that formoterol has a very short onset of action, similar to albuterol. So it's been known that people who will use that inhaler, that combination inhaler containing formoterol, have a albuterol-like effect, like a rescue inhaler. So a number of trials were conducted in which a baseline dose of the combination inhaler as we've been using for years is given, but then with recommendations that during worsening episodes, during exacerbations, you can use up to 12 total puffs a day in children over 12 and eight puffs a day in children under 12 
using that inhaler as a rescue. It's known as SMART therapy, single maintenance and reliever therapy. For, so a single inhaler for use on a daily basis as well as for rescue. And the outcomes were very clear cut, very, much more effective therapy, particularly for reducing those severe exacerbations. That was the major outcome. It's especially good, in my view, for folks who are not so good at taking medication every day, like teenagers. And if they use this inhaler, I say we're getting stealth steroids because they'll use it because it works. We've always known that children and adults will use albuterol for rescue. You don't have to teach them how to do that because they feel it working. They know it works. It's the same with these combination inhalers. The famotidol kicks in quickly. They get relief. Plus, they're getting the inhaled steroid along with it. And there's something about the biochemistry of that combination in that the two medications together have a synergistic effect and therefore enhances the outcomes and the symptom relief. So that's the major um, change in our thinking. Now, along with that comes a difficulty of using it as a rescue. You know, some may use their inhaler in, during an exacerbation and run out by the end of the month and they may need a new inhaler more quickly in addition schools keeping an extra inhaler at a school or the older children certainly can carry their inhaler but that's a little tricky as well this is an instance where our emphasis on guidelines and guideline education has sort of hampered our ability to make changes because this is a major change, a major difference in the way we used to educate. We used to have your controller inhaler that you did regularly every day and your rescue inhaler. And we've been driving that concept home with our families for a decade. And now we're switching a little bit. We also have to work with the FDA and insurance companies to provide at times more than one inhaler a month. That said, critique has been, well, they may get too much of the beta agonist or too much inhaled steroid. Well, all the studies demonstrate that there is reduced use if compared to traditional therapy with a daily inhaled corticosteroid and an albuterol rescue. The, medic, the amount of inhaled steroid used in these studies was actually much less. And that didn't even really account for the reduction in oral steroid use. So it's less medicine, better results. And so therefore, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this approach. But we've got some, you know, we've got to redo our whole education effort along these lines. And at schools, with school nurses, you know, I'm slowly educating the nurses that contact me. Um, well, the, one of the other recommendations that came through was uh, environmental management of allergens in the home in helping children with their allergies. So for one, it, 
the recommendation came that immunotherapy or allergy shots is effective for reducing asthma morbidity. So if, if a child does have significant allergies, then immunotherapy is a very good option for re reducing their asthma symptoms. The other is environmental management, and uh, there's a number of environmental controls for mold and dust mite and, and rodents, you know, pests. And in general, the recommendation is one needs to implement a whole umbrella of environmental management and studies that would then demonstrate an improvement in their symptoms. Single interventions other than pest control didn't seem to have as much of an impact. For instance, a child with dust mite allergy, just using impermeable covers and the other recommendations for reduction of dust mite in the home didn't seem to have as big an impact impact compared to if they did that plus pest control plus some of the other measures for reduction of mold and pet exposure and things of that nature. That's where the SA Kids Breathe program where they come to your house that could be really helpful. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, parents and are probably hesitant to tell their pediatrician that grandpa's smoking in the house or something along those mm -hmm. lines. Right. And visiting the home is eye-opening. I was involved in a program 20 years ago where we had home visits and that's exactly what we found. Mm -hmm. An ashtray full of cigarette really? butts when they had, you know, in our medical record, they had denied there was any exposure to cigarette smoke. So, and then also from a safety standpoint, how the chemicals are stored, things of that nature, you, there, there's additional benefits. And maybe someone in their home, it's, it's just, you know, you walk in and you, you smell the air fresheners. And that's one of our messages with children with asthma is to avoid the technical term, volatile organic compounds like cleaning products and air fresheners and plug-ins and incense and things of that nature. And I'll digress to uh, a kid I saw many years ago, a, a young child. She was uh, probably one year old, and the parents told me every time they were in their home, the child coughed, and they couldn't figure out what it was. And they were very cognizant of not smoking and other kinds of environmental hazards. And then at one point, the family looks at me and goes, well, what about incense? And I said, well, of course, incense is akin to cigarette smoke and the irritating effects it can have on the airway. So we assume a lot that people sort of figure out that anything burning is bad, but sometimes we have to ask very specific questions about that and make sure that there all those environmental hazards are, are not in the home and may be exacerbating their asthma. Sometimes it's what the patient isn't saying, so. That's a good reminder to, to keep asking detailed questions. Let's move on to allergic rhinitis. At what age or at what threshold of exposure does a person develop seasonal allergies? And that's a question, an anonymous question from one of our pediatric practitioner listeners. Sure, that's, that's a very good question. And it dovetails with another question lower 
and I'll go ahead and read that one off because they go together. Because sure. I have a number of five to six month old patients whose parents say their PCP have diagnosed diagnosed them with seasonal allergies. And so my stock answer when I'm training medical students in particular residents is it true alert the symptoms of true allergic rhinitis typically do not start until two years of age. That said, I have had the occasional child come in. I recall an 18 month old, the mom said, oh, I think she's got allergies. And I skeptically said, yeah, well, tell me about that. She goes, well, every time she gets around a cat, her face blows up and she gets teary eyes and sneezes. I said, okay, you're, she's cat allergic. I get that. Mm -hmm. That's an obvious one. For the most of the children, though, they really don't develop typical itching and sneezing. And most children develop indoor allergies. So to dust mites, the most common, and pets can be another one. And so they have perennial allergies typically. And you'll ask them, well, when was the last time their nose was clear? And it's like they can't even think of a time when their nose was clear. This kind of dovetails with what we do see in the first two years of life is a lot of upper respiratory infections, mostly with viral and pathogens. And how do we distinguish between those two? Well, again, allergies in younger children tend to be perennial. And they'll wake up, typical story for dust mite, they wake up in the morning, they go through this ritual of blowing their nose and sneezing, and they get out of bed, go to school, they're fine. The next morning, they wake up with exactly the same thing, and it goes on all year long. Because dust mites have the highest concentration of the bed, what their diet is is the skin that flakes off of us. And so wherever we are, that's where they are. And the bed is the highest concentration. A lot of children just have respiratory infections, but they're the snotty-nosed kid. You know, the first two years of life and that's i think why a lot of pediatricians kind of label them you know everyone else in the family has allergic disease and this child is snotty all the time so they figure oh they got allergic disease and they're not completely wrong because what i call the pre-allergic state is these kids so allergy is an immune issue it's not necessarily something about the out, outside world. It's that, that our bodies respond abnormally to these innocent pollens and pet dander and mite. But they also have abnormal responses to particular viruses and do, do not clear viruses. This has to do with this Th1, Th2 balance. And they don't seem to clear viruses readily and they produce a ton of mucus. So. You can almost predict that child is going to go on and develop allergies. That said, allergy therapy doesn't do anything to prevent the onset of allergic diseases, mostly symptomatic. So another one of the questions is, do infants benefit from first generation antihistamines for runny noses and or URIs? And the answer is categorically no, from a long-term preventive standpoint they certainly may make them feel better. And I often see some of these younger children that are taking most commonly cetirizine chronically, and it has no 
long-term benefit to the development of allergic disease and in fact may have a negative effect in the sense that antihistamines have been associated with recurrent otitis media in some studies. So there's been several big Cochrane reviews on use of antihistamines and decongestants for treatment of otitis media or recurrent otitis media and preventing that. And antihistamines have no benefit in these studies and in some cases have a negative effect. And the way I kind of think about this is that antihistamine, particularly the first generation, which are in all the over-the-counter cold medicines. So despite the prescriptions that I see, I'm sure a lot of families are giving their younger children over-the-counter cold medicines that have a first-generation antihistamine, sometimes a decongestant denim. And the particularly the first generation are very drying. That's why we see the symptomatic relief. They stop having the runny nose and everything looks good. The problem is the way the ears and the sinuses and the lungs stay healthy is by constantly producing and sweeping out mucus. Call it the mechanical immune system. It sweeps the gunk out and, that, and all of that snot and drainage is serving a purpose. If you dry that up during an infection, you're more likely to have a secondary otitis media or sinus infection. So I'm very adamant. In fact, my recommendations to all my patients, adult and children, are to use topical nasal steroids if they have true allergic rhinitis and use antihistamines as needed when they have an episode of itching and sneezing that's uncontrolled or they're not sleeping at night. You know, I'm I'm not cruel if a child can't sleep in the cold medicines, you know, Benadryl will knock them out so they'll sleep. Um, and it does open up the airway temporarily. I think that's okay. I just, I personally don't like the idea of this everyday therapy with antihistamines as a preventive therapy because it really has no role there. So just take it as needed and don't use antihistamines for a cold. Correct. I, I think kids ought to have snotty noses. <laughs> I think that's a natural. Right. <laughs> when they have a cold, they should have snot coming out. And our efforts, unfortunately, and, and I'm just as guilty as every other parent when my children were young and, you know, we give them the Tylenol before they drop them off at the daycare or an antihistamine if they got a snotty nose because you know they're going to call you at noon and say your child has a fever and you got to go pick mm -hmm. them up. So I understand the limitations in trying to keep kids in school and the schools sending them home because they're sick. But the best thing for a cold is sleep and chicken soup. And as we know, our listeners see a lot of snot. So mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's it's a a big issue, and I think our uh, public in general, and I've said this before, they don't feel like their children should have runny noses anymore. All mm -hmm. children have to go through that period of, you know, catching every virus that comes through, particularly in daycare and school, and going through a period, usually it lasts about a year, where they're really sick, quote, all the time. And I get these mm -hmm. patients. This past year has been particularly bad. Why is that? You know, everyone knows what rhinovirus and RSV is now because it was in the headlines. Right. We've had these 
big outbreaks of these viruses. These viruses are always around. There was nothing different about those viral strains than what we've had in the past. What I think, and, and, and maybe there's you know a, a smarter scientist out there that studied this, I think there's waning immunity during the pandemic. Everyone was shut down. Most adults and children weren't contracting these routine viruses. And we don't get lasting immunity when we get a rhinovirus. We'll get it every year. But it's attenuated in the sense that we do have an immune response that does protect us to some degree. And as adults, we think we don't get exposed, but we do. We get all the bugs exposed to us. We just don't have the symptoms anymore because our immune systems kill it pretty quickly. And it's the same that happens with children after that first year of daycare or first year of school. They go through a snotty phase and then they kind of come out of it. It's not because they're getting not getting viruses. It's because they've developed some immunity. So I think after two years of shutdown, you know, we the viruses, first of all, came back with, with a vengeance. And I think a lot of it was a we just didn't have good immunity. We had flu in the summer and they were just all over the place. That's the other lesson what it's taught us is that these the fall virus season, which is the peak of the virus season, has very little to do with the weather, or the temperature. It may have a little bit to do with that. It has to do with kids getting back in school, us crowding and passing these things around. And back in the chickenpox days, that was a good thing because one kid got chickenpox, you sent your kids over to their house so they could get it and get over with it. And so we get cohorted and get exposed to all these things and we develop immunity. And I'll end up with those kids who really don't develop immunity that really do have severe infections with pneumonias and things and may in fact have an immune deficiency. And I've seen a lot of those kids this uh, winter and spring with this story and most of them just had a bad virus year, like a lot of people. Their immune systems are intact, and so it's affected all of us. What about, here's another question from a, a pediatric practitioner, and I know you've touched on this, but bottom line, what are some tips on distinguishing colds versus allergies? Right, and, and that's tricky. Um, I'll admit I can't really tell the difference. The pattern, that's the key. Allergy, and I'm going I'm to kind of jump ahead a little bit because allergy testing in young children is not as accurate. That said, if you're negative for allergy testing and yet you're getting a lot of runny nose and snotty nose, it, A, it doesn't necessarily mean you're not allergic. B, it may indicate you're having a lot of URIs. Your eyes come and go, as I said before. You know, you, you get sick for a week, you kind of have a peak, maybe a little fever, a little green stuff or yellow stuff, and then towards the end of the week, they're improving and they eventually get over it. Allergies don't do that. As I said before, and, and particularly in younger children, allergies tend to be perennial, although I have seen more and more seasonal allergies, uh, particularly with mountain cedar. Mountain cedar is easy because it's very discrete season in December and January. And it comes and it goes, and it, there's not a whole lot of other pollens out there. Now, there are molds, and we're always exposed to the cat and dust mite in the house. But looking at seasonality, so if you truly are developing, 
And a lot of parents want to project to the guy, well, I have Mount Cedar allergy, therefore I think my kid has it, my baby has it too. It takes them a little bit longer to develop those pollen sensitivities. Why? Because they're indoors most of the time. They're not outdoors, which is a problem. They should be outdoors. But um, the Mount Cedar season is going to last for at least a month. And, and it's not these acute, dramatic symptoms. It just We do have some bad days. In early January, we had uh, pretty high counts. And that's a good time to assess people. But I say, how were you the first week of January? If they say, no, I wasn't too bad, then you unlikely to have Mount Cedar allergies and or you have very mild Mount Cedar allergies, but it's going to go on for a month. It's not going to just come and go in a week and be perfectly fine. Um, a lot of people say, oh, I think I have mold allergies. And I say, why is that? Well, every time I, you know, having symptoms, I check the news and they say the mold counts are high. And I ask them, do you ever check the news when your allergies are fine? <laughs> and they said they usually say no and because mold counts intermittently are high all year round and and so taking a good allergy history is actually better than allergy testing um the allergy seasons for pollens are very somewhat discreet now for grasses it's you know it's, we get grass pollens off and on throughout the year unfortunately so that's getting a little weird because of our warmer climate in the winter but uh right now we're in the middle of tree pollen season so i mentioned mountain cedar um and there's not much else out there that nothing else pollinates at that time so that's easier to tell um spring pollen starting late February, March, and go through April, and then the trees are done. The other piece of history with tree pollen allergies is that trees tend to pollinate at night. And so people with just tree pollen allergy will wake up in the morning feeling pretty good. They walk outside and they're miserable. It hits them like a brick because that's when the counts are the highest. So that's a, that's a, you know, as opposed to the child with dust mite allergy will wake up in the morning and be all snotty and sneezy and then the rest of the day they're better so that can help you distinguish between those two allergens pets are easy i always tell people to do the cat challenge which means find a friendly cat shove your face in it if you start sneezing you're cat allergic <laughs> that's better than any allergy test i can do um or i was going to ask you something mm -hmm. about dust mites um mm -hmm. how often should we all be washing our sheets or what do you recommend there? Well, if you truly have a dust mite allergy, um, I think regular washing, not overly compulsive washing is fine, you know, weekly or every other week, whatever your schedule is. What does seem to help are the dust-free sheets or dust covers. They, they come, they, they're sold by different names. So there's a mattress encasement. The plastic encasement is great, you know, the old bedwetting sheets because they completely enclose to the mites live in the mattress and the pillow anything upholstered so they crawl down there and hang out and then they'll come out and eat the little skin that flakes off then they leave a little present behind which is their feces and that's actually what we're allergic to the digestive enzymes in their intestinal tract so 
But we did a, a sleep episode. Now you're going to make it hard to sleep if we keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> They're microscopic. They're, you know, we live with microorganisms and little critters all the time. And I think the sooner we get used to that, the better. Um, it, if, you, if you're not allergic, you know, you don't have to worry about doing any kind of measures for mite allergy. Um, it, it, there's some older literature that the higher the level of dust mite in the home, correlated with more allergic sensitization to dust mite. And that's sort of been turned on its head a little bit in the sense that, for instance, when we give allergy shots, we give what you're allergic to in very high doses. So why isn't higher doses, if you will, of dust mite correlate with reduction in allergy? Well, it's, it's a magnitude of difference in the sense that that's still a minor exposure and probably more likely to be sensitized something that you're exposed to in higher quantities. So eliminating the dust mite from your environment, and there's some other paradoxes that support this, really doesn't reduce. So living in a bubble, living in a sterile environment, um, really doesn't reduce your risk of developing allergic sensitization. In fact, it probably increases it. And this has been really shown in a much more dramatic way in food allergy. Avoidance of the, quote, highly allergenic foods, which became accustomed over the last decade or so to not introduce foods that were allergenic, such as peanuts and eggs and seafood, actually probably promoted the development of allergic sensitization. Okay. And... Here's another question from a pediatric practitioner. How do you feel about doing blood allergy testing such as immunocap? And what role does it play in the primary care setting? And how confident should we be in the results as far as accuracy? Well, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a big fan of the immunocap. You know, of course we do skin testing and immunocap is a complement to that. It's not as sensitive as a skin test. That said, and this addresses one of the questions you had earlier, in an allergy skin test, you can get a lot of, quote, false positives. What do I mean by that? Both of these tests, the predictability of true allergic disease increases when, with the size of the skin test reaction or the higher the level of the immunocap score. Putting cutoff levels on these so you have higher level of confidence it's really only been done carefully with food allergy. For instance, if you test a child for food allergy, first of all, history is gonna win that battle. If you test them and they're positive for egg, but they eat eggs, they're not allergic, they're sensitized. And they need to keep eating egg to, to remain tolerant. If the level is super high, or if they've eaten eggs and they say, oh, they don't, I hear this a lot. Oh, they don't like peanut butter. What child doesn't like peanut butter? <laughs> One parent came in and told me, he said, no, no food allergies, but he doesn't like peanut butter. And I went, well, that's odd. He's a six-year-old boy. He should like peanut butter. Now, some kids don't, but I tested him and he was very high for peanut. So he probably had a subtle allergy in his body told him he didn't like it. So when a child said they don't like mm. a specific food, sometimes 
is not being picky. It's meaning, no, it made me feel bad. It made my stomach hurt or I got an itchy throat. What is the first line of therapy for allergic rhinitis? Second, third? Right. So most people are, you know, for very mild symptoms and, and taking an antihistamine will relieve the symptoms. And if that's all you need to do, that's all you need to do. Singular or Montelukast works in approximately half the kids. And it's pretty mild. Some kids do have some side effects, nightmares and some other behavioral problems. So I, I tend to avoid those in children that may have pre-existing behavioral issues. Um, but it's always important to, if you're using Montelukast to ask the parent, did it really work? You really feel like it's making a difference. And the ones where it really works, I've gotten some very positive responses. Most of the time, there's like, well, I, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit. And that's probably a negative response. And of course, I'm a big fan, as everyone is, uh, about not using medication if it's not helping, not making a difference. So again, stopping and starting at intervals to really establish that and doing a, you know, a good few week trial. They say the peak effect of Montelukast is around three weeks because it has an anti-eosinophilic effect. So you, it may be a you know delayed benefit over time, but a lot of people do get an immediate benefit if, if, if they're a responder, as we say. I'm a big fan of uh, topical nasal steroids. They're very effective for allergic rhinitis. So that is usually, by the time they get to me, if they've got pretty significant symptoms, um, the, the difference in the way I prescribe them compared to what FDA has approved, what they've got FDA approval for, is I will use high doses intermittently. For instance, during the allergy season, I'll say do it two or three, four times a day, just slam it, kind of like a loading dose of steroid. And, and the rationale I use is if you put someone on steroids, which they do in the adult world, all the time. They'll put them on oral steroids and antibiotic for every sinus infection. But the oral steroids will wipe out allergic rhinitis. It's like just melts it away. So you know steroids work. So when people tell me, oh, that that you know fluticasone doesn't really work, they're probably not using enough or consistently. And particularly kids don't like stuff squirting up their nose. And so they'll use it here and there, and the parents go, well, it doesn't have an immediate effect. You know, it's a, it's a more delayed effect. But if you use it high doses over, like, say, a week when you're really miserable, then back off to the once a day. Once a day is fine for prevention. It's terrible for treating so. And the other part is it's just mechanical. If you've got a snotty nose and you use the nasal spray and then blow your nose, it's gone. So I always tell folks, just repeat it. You, yeah, I, and I tell them you can't really overdose. That said, I know we're all sensitive to the growth and inhibition that steroids can have, both topical as well as oral. And so that's why I'm a big fan of using it to get the desired effect in the higher doses and then back off. So variable dosing, depending on their symptoms. And they have to continue that for at least three or four days when they're really flared up. And again, that goes back to identifying their allergy season. If this I, springtime is a bad time for them, then as soon as they start having the symptoms, get on top of it. Allergies are hard to chase. What I mean by that is once you're really miserable, it's hard. You got to use a ton of medication to knock it down. 
if you can nip it in the bud, it always works better. And that kind of goes back to the smart therapy with asthma. If you give someone the tools to start treating their asthma, as soon as they start having symptoms, you nip it in the bud and they tend not to have the more severe symptoms. Food allergy, the cutoffs for, let's say, egg allergy is like a two or a five. And the pediatricians know what I'm talking about when they see those numbers. I mm-hmm. tell them to ignore the class because that's a that's an artificial system based on the ability of that particular test to detect IgE antibodies. It really doesn't help you with a correlation with allergic disease. So peanuts, it's around 15 to have, and these cutoffs were developed when they did oral challenges with children and did the immunocap or the, um, there's newer tests, they're all um, in vitro tests, the blood test. And those cutoffs for like wheat allergy is like around 15 and um, and it goes down from there. But if you get a level that's just, you know, what they may call a class one, which is they use 0.35 is that's a that's an old historical cutoff from the RAS test for saying the test is positive. It doesn't mean positive allergy. It means the test is positive. And so you may be slightly sensitized. It doesn't mean you're allergic. So with food, it's easy because you can do oral challenges and detect an immediate reaction. If you don't have immediate reaction, you're not allergic, continue eating the food. For pollens and other inhalant allergens, that kind of work has not really been done. That said, um, I use a, just a bottom cutoff of 0.7, but again, that's a little bit arbitrary, and this is based on some research that we did. Um, I like to see a good high level, and I will see you know greater than 100 on that immunocap for mountain cedar and some other allergens. You can have pretty good confidence if you've got those high levels and they correlate with the season that they're having their symptoms, you can then say, yeah, you probably have a Mount Cedar allergy. You have an oak allergy. If this is, you know, if the the testing confirms the history, history is the most important. I can't emphasize that enough. I would love it if the pediatrician had like a little questionnaire where they ask their patients, you know, have them fill it out in the waiting room if they're there for their quote allergies to, you know, when your child's symptoms, what season, you know, when they, when they're exposed to pets, do they have itching and sneezing? Do they have allergy symptoms, et cetera? And that goes a long way to helping you determine are they truly allergic or again the old respiratory infection problem. Does brand name matter when it comes to over-the-counter allergy medications? Say for pollen, is there one or two types you know of brand names you recommend? They all work. <laughs> now, for um, nasal steroids, there's four over the counter, and I'll I'll give you the budesonide or rhinocort, fluticasone or flonase. Everybody knows flonase because that's sort of a preferred with a lot of the insurance companies. It's um, been around a long time, right? Been around a long time. Nasonex, which is mometasone, and uh, Nasocort, which is triamcinolone. I tend to avoid the triamcinolone because it has less of a first pass effect in the liver. So potentially if there are growth inhibitory effects because the child's using inhaled steroids for asthma and nasal steroids and then gets prednisone intermittently, 
um, I want to reduce their exposure to potentially growth inhibiting corticosteroids. They're all over the counter. And I tell people they all work the generics versus the brand name. And I encourage people to find the least expensive option, which may be sort of the big box stores like the Costco or Sam's Club. And uh, you can find the family pack for platicasone. I, I, my wife picked one up the other day for $20. Very reasonable. And a lot of the insurance, the commercial insurance companies aren't covering it. Medicaid will still cover Flonase or Fluticasone. Um, but it changes year to year what they're going to cover and what's um, particularly the over-the-counter. Now, for the antihistamines, I'm a big fan of cetirizine, um, but loratadine, which is another long-acting antihistamine, as well as uh, fexofenadine or Allegra is another one. Um, and I don't think there's really a whole lot of difference among them. Um, uh, they have done some comparative trials many years ago that showed a little bit of inferiority with loratadine, but I, I think it's, and people say, oh, well, this one doesn't work anymore, so I switched to another one. There's really no good biochemical explanation for that, and so I, I, I usually at that point say, oh, well, you just need to use more of the nasal steroid. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. There are nasal antihistamines, uh, azelastine and olopatidine, and used in combination with a nasal steroid can be very effective. And you can avoid if you have, some people have sedative side effects of cetirizine, certainly Benadryl, you know, some families come in, oh, they're just sleepy. I can't go to school because I'm giving them Benadryl. I said, well, stop that. <laughs> Give them something <laughs> non-sedating. So, you know, and the ones I listed are the non-sedating. And so those are better. Benadryl at night's fine. It'll knock them out and they'll sleep all night. And we'll give them some allergy relief. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.